0: Hi, my name is Nipan Patel, and I'm a faculty member at UC Berkeley in the Department of Molecular Cell Biology and in the Department of Integrative Biology. In the first of my talks, I explained to you the role of Hox genes in patterning the anterior-posterior axis of animals, and the early attempts to associate Hox gene expression with evolutionary changes in morphology. And in that example, the very first time people had looked in insects to see whether it might explain the transition from four wings to two wings, it looked like the explanation was that Hox gene... changes in Hox gene expression, in fact, weren't responsible. But what I'd like to do now is to move on in the second part of my talk to now give you an example where we can show that the change in Hox gene expression early in embryonic development does seem to play a role in the evolutionary change of morphology. And in this case, I'm going to illustrate this by moving outside of the insects. So, insects are one of the largest groups in in the phylum Arthropoda, Um, but here you're seeing a phylogenetic tree of the arthropods. And so you've got the insects here, and then things like um, chelicerates, which are spiders and and, um, scorpions here, and then you've got the myriapods, which are millipedes and centipedes. But then this other huge clade that you have, are crustaceans. So now, actually, it turns out that crustaceans are paraphyletic, so technically, an insect is just a type of terrestrial crustacean. But um, my lab has increasingly begun to focus on crustaceans in addressing a number of questions. And I'm going to focus on these questions of the role of Hox genes in body morphology and evolutionary changes. So one of the reasons that um, crustaceans are an excellent group to look at... I mean, first of all, They are reasonably closely related to Drosophila, where we have a really detailed understanding of the molecular and genetic basis for development, so we can actually quickly have candidate genes and some idea of pathways and things to look like when we go into crustaceans. But the other reason is, is that they actually have incredible diversity of their body plans, much more so than insects. So, for example, as embryos, insects are all stuck with the same number of segments. But segment number is actually quite variable in crustaceans between different species, and there's even a few species of crustaceans that have variable numbers of segments while they're developing. But again, the overall body morphology, and especially the patterns of appendages, which is what we're really going to focus on, are much more varied in crustaceans than they are in insects. And so... Um, Here's an example of a typical crustacean. This is a stomatopod, a side view of a stomatopod. And the thing I want to really point out here is that, unlike insects, they have a pair of appendages on every single segment of their body. So, starting from the antenna and working their way all the way back. So, they don't have appendages just in their head and thorax. They actually have appendages on all of their abdominal segments as well. Okay? And the idea is that... They actually have a lot of different appendage morphology, even along the axis of a single individual. So, here you're seeing a diagram of the appendages dissected off here in a crayfish. And you're seeing examples of all the different types of appendages that they have. So, again, up at the very front, they have antennae, then they have specialized appendages for feeding, um, picking up food, claws for fighting, legs for running, and then on the abdomen, they have. Um, appendages for uh, gas exchange and for holding eggs, and they have an appendage to anchor themselves into the substrate. So they have this incredible diversity of appendages both along the axis of an individual animal, and if you look between species, lots of variation in appendage morphology. And so some people have likened this to kind of a Swiss army knife approach to a body plant. So if you think of these different things, like the blades and the screwdriver and things like that, as different appendages, the idea is that you have actually a lot of tools at your disposal, and you put different morphologies of appendages, which serve different functions on different segments. So, if you've ever, like, dealt with a lobster that didn't have rubber bands on its claws, you kind of understand this, because the animal can actually attack you, it can eat, and it can run away simultaneously, because it has different appendages on its body for different functions They can use all at once. And so what we like to do, then, is understand um, how you get this variation. And again, crustaceans are great for this because they have incredible variation in appendages between species as well as along the axis. And so I'm illustrating that here, with two different examples that are maybe kind of the extremes of appendage specialization in crustaceans. So, this animal is a brine shrimp, or artemia. And it's a filter feeder, but it has 11 thoracic segments. But those all actually have appendages that all look very similar to one another. And they basically just act like oars as the animal rows through the water. And you can contrast that to something like, um, our, again, the crayfish here, which has many, many different kinds of appendages for different things. And so, one of the things that we wanted to do was to understand how it is that you get these specializations and how you change them between species. And we focused on a particular specialization that occurs in the anterior part of the thorax. Okay. And this is a structure called the maxilliped. Um, and I'm illustrating that here in a crustacean called a mycid shrimp. a little shrimp... and this is a scanning EM view of a mycid, and it's colorized for a co- couple of the different appendages. So... What I'm showing here is the T3 appendage, and this is a typical swimming appendage in this animal. So, again, this is a swimming animal, and T3 on back and the thorax look very much like this, and they're used for swimming. But if you look at the first thoracic appendage, T1, it has a very different morphology, and, in fact, has a completely different function. This appendage is actually used for feeding instead, and it morphologically looks much more like a jaw appendage from the head, than it does one of these swimming appendages. So it's been called a maxilliped, or literally a jaw-foot. So it's a thoracic appendage right? But it actually looks more like a head appendage, and functionally it's used like a head appendage, because it's used for feeding. Interestingly enough, is T2, which is obviously between T1 and T3, and it's sort of intermediate in its morphology. So it's used for locomotion, but you can see that it actually has a sort of intermediate morphology. So it turns out that these maxillipeds are actually important for classifying different groups of crustaceans. So what I'm showing you here... Is a is a very rough phylogeny of some of the crustaceans. And then you're seeing their body plans here. And I've highlighted the maxillipeds in red. So there are a couple points to make. One is that you can have different numbers of maxillipeds. So I already showed you the example of something like brine shrimp, which doesn't have any maxillipeds and has all locomotory legs across the thorax. And then I showed you the example of the mycid that has one pair of maxillipeds in T1. Um, and then locomotory appendages more posterior. But it turns out that you can have, in fact, two pairs of maxillipeds. You see that in something like a lobster. And you can have three pairs of maxillipeds as well. And an example of that is a cleaner shrimp. Now, if you look at the phylogeny, what you realize is probably the ancestral state was to not have any maxillipeds, and that maxillipeds potentially have evolved more than once. So you see an evolution here. These are copepods, and then you see another evolution of maxillipeds, first with just one, and then uh, potentially with increasing numbers in this group of crustaceans. So um, you see this very these distribution of maxillipeds um, within this group of organisms. So, what we want to do is ask if we can understand what might be the molecular basis for the transition from maxillipeds to locomotory appendages. And then, if that uh, molecule that we're looking at, or gene that we're looking at, that we think might be correlated with that, whether then it also explains the different numbers of maxillipeds, either 0, 1, 2, or 3 pairs. And so, I'll start showing you, then, the data that we collected to try to look at this issue. And we did this by looking at the crustacean ortholog of the... of the Drosophila hox gene ultrabithorax, UBX. And so, what I'm showing you here is we're starting with an example of a crustacean that has no maxillipets. And again, it's the animal I showed you before, the brine shrimp. So, all of the thoracic appendages look very similar, um, and they're all locomotory. And so if you look, shown in black here, is UBX expression. So, we look at a slightly older animal, you can already see the limbs, and you see that UBX is expressed starting in T1, going all the way back. And that expression is actually established even much earlier in embryos, before you see the limbs appearing. So, in this animal, the black staining is actually a gene called in which is expressed in the posterior part of each segment, and in brown is UBX expression. But it's still the same result, that UBX starts being expressed at T1, along the AP axis, and then is expressed from there more posterior. So, it's expressed at the transition between the head and the thorax, which is the transition between the feeding appendages and the locomotory appendages. But now let's go to an animal that has a pair of maxillipeds, And again, we'll use the mycid, which I introduced you to before. So, remember, in the head, it has these feeding appendages. And then from T2 and T3... These are basically locomotory appendages. We'll get back to the T2 being a little bit intermediate in a minute. Um, And that the maxilliped is on T1. So, this appendage is clearly functionally used for feeding, and its morphology is much more like a jaw appendage of the head than it is, like, one of these locomotory appendages. So, what do you see here in terms of UBX expression? So, if you focus on the middle panel to start with, what you see is that it expresses from T2 on more posterior. So, remember, artemia expression started in T1. So, here, relative to artemia, the anterior boundary is shifted posterior one segment. Okay? So, that correlates, then, with that transition of where you go from a maxilloped to a locomotory appendage. And you can see, here's an embryo where the UBX staining is in black, and again, it's from T2 on back, and in is is in brown, which shows you the position of the segments before there's any morphology of the limbs. Now... Let's revisit this question of T2, because T2 is intermediate in its morphology. It is functionally a locomotory appendage, but it's got some aspects that look a little bit like a maxilliped, and some aspects which look a little bit more like the the rest of the locomotory limbs. And, in fact, it's mosaic in another interesting way. It's the tip of it here, the distal tip, that looks more like the maxilliped, and the more proximal part of the limb looks a little bit more like this T3 locomotory limb. So, that's interesting, because if you look here, I told you expression starts in T2 and then goes more posterior, but you can see that there's lower expression in T2 relative to T3. So, there's this expression-level difference that correlates with this intermediate morphology. Furthermore, if you look later in development, so now it's sort of a side view, you're seeing the limbs off going this way, and this dotted line um, indicates the boundary of this T2 limb. And what you see is that at this stage, late in development, T2 is expressing UBX very strongly at its base, and then not at all in more distal regions, which, again, correlates with the fact that the more distal tip of it looks more like a maxillopet, and the more proximal base looks more like T3. So, think about this now, in terms of what we told you before about the genetics of these Hox genes in flies and mice. So, if we compare Artemia to this mycid... In Artemia, UBX started in T1, and in the mycid, it starts in T3 two. So that means we've lost expression in T1 in this species. And if you think, again, like I said, back to the genetics in flies or in mice, if we lose Hox gene expression in a segment, um, in this case, the example that we had before of UBX in flies, then that segment takes on the morphology of the segment in front of it. So that means that if we shift UBX back from out of T1 and now the boundaries in T2 that T1 should look more like a head appendage and that's exactly the definition of the maxilliped so now this segment this appendage looks much more like a jaw appendage than it does like a locomotory appendage so we see this shift in expression that correlates that with this change in the number of maxillipeds So, what if we go to other crustaceans that have different numbers of maxillopeds? So, an example of a crustacean that has two pairs of maxillopeds when it hatches is a lobster embryo. So, you're seeing here that you've got a big um, claw already on T3, but T2 and T3, which are shown by these white arrowheads here, they just have maxillopeds on them. And so, sure enough, when you look at UBX expression in this animal, which is shown here, UBX expression starts in T3 and goes from there back, and it's absent from T1 and T2. And those are lacking UBX expression. And again, and the embryo grows up and turns into a hatchling. It has maxillipeds on those segments. And finally, here's an example of a crustacean that has three pairs of maxillipeds. So, these are cleaner shrimp. And so their claws, their big legs, um, start on T4. And T1, T2, and T3 have maxillipeds. You can kind of see that a little bit better in this embryo here, that these three segments have maxillipeds and then you get the much larger segments. Sure enough, if you look at expression of UBX, it actually starts now in T4. So, it shifted three segments back relative to artemia. Okay? And this is showing expression in the nervous system, which shows the same boundary. So, in the end, what we see is illustrated here. So, now the maxillopeds are still shown in red, but now the domain of expression of UBX is shown in blue. At least the the important thing is the anterior boundary of expression. And what you see is, is there's a correlation between the expression of UBX and the transition from feeding appendages, like maxillipeds to locomotory appendages. So, what you see is that as UBX moves more posteriorly, okay, between species, that those segments that have lost expression become maxillopeds, and they have the morphology of head appendages. So, this really, again, like I said, matches very well with the genetics that we know from flies and mice, that when you shift a Hox gene more posteriorly than segments that lose expression take on a more anterior morphology. So, unlike the case in insects, where we didn't see the correlation between the wing number and the boundary of UBX, in this case, we are seeing a very nice correlation between the boundary of a Hox gene and the morphology of the appendage, not only within a single species, but between species. And so this implicates... this change in UBX expression is possibly playing an actual functional role in the evolutionary change of these body plans, obviously here, changing the number of maxillopeds. But it's a great correlation, but then this is one of the problems that we run into when we start working with non-model species, um, or species that are newly emerging and we don't necessarily have all the tools that we would have in something like Drosophila, C. elegans, or zebrafish, to actually address gene function. So, in my lab, a number of years ago, we really wanted to test this hypothesis that UBX was controlling this boundary between the feeding appendages, and the locomotory appendages. But what we needed to do was to develop a crustacean species in which we could do manipulative genetic experiments. And so, a number of years ago, we did exactly that. So, we've been working on this crustacean called Parhyla hawaiensis. So, it's kind of a mouthful. You can just call it a beach hopper. Um And they're small, sort of nondescript little gray animals that live on beaches all over the world. This particular species lives in tropical water. If you've ever been to a beach anywhere and you see gray things jumping in the sand, they are these amphipod crustaceans that belong to this same group. Like I said, our particular species, parhyla, is found in tropical water around the world. But the place we isolated it from was interesting. I was actually a faculty member at the University of Chicago at the time, and a student in my lab, Bill Brown, went to the Shedd Aquarium. But Bill didn't go to the place where they have display tanks. He went to the filtration system of the aquarium. And these animals live in the filtration system. Nobody takes care of them, and they just eat garbage that comes through the filters. So they're a perfect lab animal, because they're just adapted. So, living in pretty awful conditions. And so, they do well in the lab for that reason. They have a number of really useful attributes. So, they're a marine species, but they're actually incredibly tolerant of water conditions. They're very easy to maintain at high density. And as I'll show you in a minute, they have a relatively good generation time. So, we can go generation to generation in about seven weeks. And so, we've established this animal over the last um, two decades now actually, as a system for really being able to do manipulations. And we've been joined by quite a number of colleagues now, who've also adopted this species. So, I'm going to introduce you a little bit to the animal, and then explain to you how we do genetic manipulations in this species. So, this is how they live in the lab. So, they just live in flats of seawater that we keep in the lab. And you'll see them here in a minute. That's a carrot that they're actually eating. And so they're the little animals that are all over the carrot. So they're only, you know... the the full-grown adults might grow about a centimeter, a little bit more. And so you'll see them there. And we can feed them just on carrots, and they do fine. They get very orange, and they presumably see really well. But otherwise, they do really well, just growing on carrots. And um, we've characterized their embryonic development. So, they take about 10 days to come to hatching, to go from a fertilized egg um, all the way through development, and they hatch out looking like little versions of the adult. So, unlike Drosophila, they don't have a larval stage. They come out at the end of 10 days being miniature versions of the adults. And um, this also helps to illustrate the different things that we've been studying in parhyla, which I'm going to only describe to you very briefly, just so you get some idea of the organism. So, we've been interested in the early development that sets up the lineages of different cells, giving rise to different tissues, the pattern by which it makes segments, and then what I'm going to mostly focus on is the Hox genes and regionalization of the body plan. But I thought I'd introduce you a little bit to some of these other topics very quickly. So, we've characterized these early lineages of the blastomeres. And so, in this animal, after three divisions, there's this eight-cell stage, where there are four micromeres, small cells, and then there's four macromeres, very big cells. And what we've shown is that for the macromeres, they give rise to anterior... posterior... uh, anterior left and right, and posterior ectoderm, and visceral mesoderm. And then for the micromeres, you have... Two micromeres which give rise to the somatic mesoderm. You have a micromere for the germline and a micromere for for endoderm. And, and you're seeing that in a cartoon fashion in this lower part of the figure. Um, this will become important in some experiments we do later because basically the first division of the animal divides most of it into a left and a right side. Okay. The other thing that's really interesting is the way that this animal makes segments. So, here you're seeing um, an animal that's about a a little less than a third of the way through embryogenesis. The blue is just staining for DNA in all the cells. And the red is this gene, which I've mentioned a couple of times, called ingrail. And in all arthropods that have been examined, ingrail is expressed in the posterior part of the segment. But if you focus on this blow-up of part of the embryo, one of the things that you realize is that these lines of cells are incredibly well-organized. These are the ones making the segments of the animal the cells are actually organized into perfect rows and columns, which is remarkable, because you don't generally see that level of organization of ectoderm in any arthropod. We understand a little bit about how they generate this organization. So, initially, you get a sheet of ectoderm in the very early embryo, and then posterior to the head, that sheet begins to almost magically organize itself into rows and columns. And then if you follow any one of these rows... Um, shown here, and then you follow what happens in the... in the course of the next few hours. That row will undergo two more divisions, but it will do so in a completely organized anterior-posterior direction. So, you go from one row to two rows to four rows. And then it's the anterior-most edge of those... of that... of that set of four rows that expresses in GRAIL. And it's this very organized division that maintains that grid, and then you get gene expression that then looks like it's in perfectly organized stripes. Um, And it turns out that you can watch this live in this animal, as well. So, here's a parhyal embryo. And what we've done is, when it was a one-cell embryo, we injected RNA for a fluorescent red protein that's going to the nucleus. And we've started taping a couple days later. So, at this point, the head is oriented up, and the future posterior is down. And it's a ventral view. And the head curves a little out of focus. These um, brighter cells, right in this area, are actually the germline. Really bright cells are in the yolk. But what I want to f- you to focus on are all the dimmer cells that are in this region of the embryo, right here. And we're going to put this movie into motion. And what you're going to see is that these cells are progressively getting themselves organized into rows and columns, starting sort of towards the posterior part of the head, and then progressively doing that more and more as you go down the axis of the animal. And then you'll see these waves of mitosis starting to begin in the embryo as well. This is all much easier to see if we go ahead and and artificially colorize a few rows of cells. So, I've colorized a few of the rows here. In this case, it's a a row that's blue, red, and green. And now, when I put the movie into motion, you'll have a little bit easier time seeing what's going on. So, you see, progressively, these rows get organized going anterior to posterior. But then, if we follow any one row, you'll see that this wave of mitosis goes through the row. And so, the row has gone from one to two cells. And then, this row is going to divide again and you're eventually going to go to a four-row stage. So this embryo we sort of jokingly refer to as sort of a Swiss version of an embryo. It has a very organized way of setting itself up, um, much more so than most arthropods. So... and the cells become so organized that they do something very unusual. They actually become cubes. Because they're organized into perfect rows and columns, they actually have right angles on them. And so this is something we're very interested in, how this actually plays out in terms of setting up the segments. Um... Likewise, the mesoderm has a very organized way of setting itself up. So, in this embryo, actually, the head is here, and the future posterior is here. And what we've done is we labeled those two micromeres that make the mesoderm, one making the left and the right with a fluorescent tracer, and now we're starting to image them a couple days later. What happens is some of those mesoderm cells move into the head to make the head mesoderm. But what I want you to pay attention to are these cells here, which are the stem cells that are going to make the rest of the mesoderm. So, these are called mesenteloblasts. And what you're going to see is they're going to divide asymmetrically. They're going to keep moving posterior in the embryo. And then they're going to leave behind rows of daughters, which make the segmental mesoderm. So, this is going into action here. So, you see now that those stem cells keep dividing, moving posterior. They leave behind these small daughters, which are then the mesoderm of that segment. Now, unfortunately, you see suddenly that movie's is ruined because the embryo rolls. This is one of the dangers of working... Um, in Northern California is that, actually, that was an earthquake, that it hit the lab, and they caused the embryo to roll. But nevertheless, hopefully, you see that both the mesoderm and the ectoderm have this very highly organized way of setting themselves up. So... but now I want to move to the, the main topic, which is really trying to understand this regionalization. So, as I said, one of the nice things is, is that when the embryo hatches out, it actually looks like a miniature version of the adult, and it has all of those appendages on it already. So, the question we want to answer, then, is the relationship between UBX and this difference between feeding and locomotory appendages. So, parhyala, this amphipod we're working on, has one pair of maxillipeds, and that's on T1. Okay? And so you can see that this appendage here... and it's called a maxilliped because it has these jaw parts at the base of it, like the other head appendages. And this appendage is actually used for feeding, and it's not used for locomotion. And then, going from there, posterior, you have segments that don't look like head appendages and are not used for feeding, and are primarily locomotory. Though I'll go into more detail about these in the third part of the talk. But for now, the distinction is between the maxilliped and the locomotory limbs, and the fact that that correlates with the boundary of UBX expression. So, the segments expressing UBX here are shown in blue, And the segments not expressing UBX are shown here. And so, just as with every other example I showed you with the crustaceans, that there's a correlation then between that boundary of UBX expression and the transition from feeding-type appendages to locomotory-type appendages. So, the whole point was... on working on this animal was not to just get another animal to get correlation, but to now be able to do functional experiments to test the hypothesis that UBX was really controlling that aspect of the body plan. So, you can imagine that there are two types of experiments, as developmental biologists, we might want to do. The first one would be to express UBX inappropriately. So, if we express UBX in these segments that don't normally express UBX, then the prediction would be that we'd be able to transform these appendages away from feeding-type appendages and towards locomotory-type appendages. Likewise, the other experiment we want to do is to remove UBX expression from this part of the embryo, And the idea would be that then we should turn these locomotory appendages into feeding-type appendages. And that would test our hypothesis that UBX really plays a role in this distinction. So, how would we go about doing these experiments? So, it turns out that in Parhyala, we can make transgenic Parhyala, and so we can get genes to be misexpressed by doing that. We take advantage of a transposable element called Minos, which integrates very nicely into the Parhyala genome. And what we're going to do is we're going to use an inducible promoter. In this case, it's it's called a heat shock promoter. We just gently warm the embryo up, and then whatever gene is attached to this promoter turns on. And in the first movie I'm going to show you, what we've done is we've put under the control of the heat shock promoter, we've put in a fluorescent red molecule. And then you're going to see what happens. So, there's an embryo here. We heat shock it. And what you're going to see is, within a few hours now, that fluorescent red protein shows up in all the nuclei, okay? This doesn't bother the embryo, because it's just a fluorescent red protein. It doesn't affect the development in any way. But now, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to hook up that heat shock promoter, and we're going to uh, use it to drive expression of parhyale UBX. But now it's going to be driven inappropriately all through the embryo. So it shouldn't do anything to the more posterior parts of the embryo, where UBX is normally expressed. But from T1, more anterior, UBX isn't normally expressed, but now it's going to be because of this promoter. And we can ask what the effect of that is. The other thing we can do in parhyala, is, I explained to you a little bit, that the first division essentially divides the animal left and right. We can inject our transposal element only on one side, and then we have a control side of the embryo as well. So, here's what happens. So, this is first to show you a wild-type animal. So, you've got an antenna that are shown here. And then this is the T1, or the maxilliped, on one side here. And then, again, here are the... the, the um, locomotory appendages going there more posterior. In this animal, what we've done is that this side of the animal is normal. So, you've got a normal T1 right there, okay? But this other side of the embryo is now inappropriately expressing UBX. So what happens is is that the T1 on the other side is not a maxilliped, but you can see is a full-blown walking leg. And that's true for even more anterior appendages, now that they're transformed into the appendages that are used for walking. So you lose the feeding appendage morphology in those segments, and you gain this morphology of of a locomotory leg. So that shows the gain-of-function phenotype works. What about if we do a a lack of... or a, a knockdown, of gene expression. So, the idea then is we should get more maxillopeds. So, again, we can do this, and in Parhyala, when we were doing these experiments many years ago, the way we knocked down expression was by RNAi. So, we inject double-stranded RNA, and that interferes with um, either the stability and or the translation of the target RNA. So, what you're seeing here are wild-type embryos stained for UBX protein. If we inject in the double-stranded RNA for UBX, you can see that we get a knockdown. So, rarely does RNAi produce a complete lack of expression, but we get a noticeable reduction in expression. So now what happens? So again, here's the wild-type T1 that's a maxilliped, so it's much shorter than a walking leg, and it's got these feeding jaw pieces to the base of it. And then here's a typical T2 appendage, which is clearly not a feeding appendage, and is this sort of general class of locomotory appendages. Okay, so what happens? So if we knock down... UBX, and we look at T2 in these knockdown animals, and there's a couple um, examples shown here. And you get, you know, various ranges of penetrance of the phenotype. But in this more extreme one, I think it's quite obvious that this now doesn't look like a normal T2, and instead what it does is it looks much more like T1. Okay, it's shortened and it has these jaw parts at the base, so it's been transformed from a locomotory type appendage into a maxilliped. So, that confirms, then, in both directions. Uh, by gaining expression, we can convert maxillopeds into walking legs. And by losing expression, we can convert walking legs into maxillopeds. So, that really um, then confirms our hypothesis that UBX, at least within parhyala, clearly controls the transition from feeding appendages to locomotory appendages. And that further supports the idea, then, that when we compare between species and we see different boundaries of UBX, that really then functionally indicates that the change in UBX is really controlling that change in morphology. So, that was our first uh, opportunity to really experimentally test the role of UBX and to bolster this hypothesis, both about function in development in a particular species and function across evolution in changing that morphology. The thing we don't know is really what's responsible for this shift in expression. And this comes down to sort of two different ideas or general categories that we might think of as to what's responsible for this shift. So the first would be what we call cis-regulatory changes. And that means that the difference in UBX expression between species, let's say between Artemia and Amyset, is due to alterations in the enhancer regions of UBX. So those are those flanking regions that control when and where a gene is expressed. So the difference in expression is actually due to genetic changes, molecular changes, in the sequence that are flanking UBX in these regulatory elements. But the other option is, is that the evolutionary changes between species are not actually in the UBX gene, or in those regulatory elements of UBX, but instead what they are is in any number of a set of genes that act upstream of UBX to control where and when UBX is expressed. So, these could be repressors or activators that are expressed prior to UBX expression and basically control where UBX is expressed. This is an important distinction, though, because this would mean that, either way, UBX expression is actually playing a role in this, in this evolutionary change in the numbers of maxillipeds. But in the cis model, it would mean that the actual molecular changes are in those regulatory elements of UBX. And in this trans model, it would mean that the actual molecular changes are in genes not U... are in... not in UBX, but instead are in other genes who act to actually regulate UBX expression. Um, and it'll take a lot more experimental analysis to try to answer this question. Um, there are a variety of approaches that could be taken. So, for example, we could try to look at the cis-regulatory regions around UBX between different species and see if that explains it. The other thing we could do is really dissect what the trans-regulators of UBX are and see if they're expressed similarly between cr- crustacean species, or whether they also show changes in expression, which would implicate that the changes are upstream of UBX expression. So, um, we've gone through, then, and shown you, then, what's responsible, we think, for evolutionary changes in that transition from these feeding-type appendages that are, you know, are always in the head, but then there can be variable, variable numbers of them in the anterior part of the thorax. Um, and that seems to be uh, a changes in UBX expression. But I've got a whole lot of other segments um, to try to explain in in crustaceans, right, with lots of really, really interesting morphologies and differences between different appendages. So, in the next part of the talk, what I'm going to try to do is now take a broader view and try to tell you about our more... much more recent work, trying to uncover how the Hox genes actually set up all these other types of appendages, and give you some additional examples, where, again, changes in Hox gene expression seem to actually explain some of the variation that you have between species of crustaceans. So, let me... Um, you know, and, and, and the idea will be that we'll be able to understand some of this spectacular variation that we have in the body plan of crustaceans. And I'll end this part by acknowledging the people that have done the work. So, there's the group of people that have specifically worked on the UBX um, gene. But I really also want to acknowledge the, the um, incredible people in the lab over the years that have worked on parhyl, different aspects that have developed it into a model system. Thank you.